We're in the Gospel of John, still chapter 16, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 16. I'm going to pray first, and then we'll get started here in this text, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to worship, and now as we worship you through the preaching of your word, we ask that you would be honored and glorified in this. I ask that you would speak here this morning, that you would teach us, that you would teach your people, that they would understand here what, uh, what John is writing for us, what Jesus is saying in, in John's gospel. And may we not only hear the words, but, but look to apply them in our life, to, to come away changed, different this morning. And may you be glorified in all of that, God. We look forward to, to knowing and understanding more what your word says, and we look forward to our time together. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So how do we respond to the uncertainty in life? There's a number of things I'm sure you can, you can think of now uh, that are uncertain in life. You just don't know what's going to happen. Some of you hate the idea of not knowing what will happen. Some of you really don't care. You, you like to fly by the seat of your pants. Some of you are downhill skiers, right? I don't ski because I don't see what's down there. I don't want to know. I don't want to go. Some of you enjoy that. That's thrilling to you. You'll pay money to go do that. But the, the, the fact of uncertainty, you don't know what's coming next. And if you remember from our prior weeks in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for something that they have never experienced, and they don't know what's going to happen. You know, if you were about to die like Jesus is, I mean, we're, we're hours away from John 16 from when Jesus is going to die. If you're hours away from death, what would you say to your friends? What would you say? This is Jesus' last teaching to his disciples before he is arrested in chapter 18. And so we stepped into chapter 16 just briefly last week, and we'll pick up from there. I want to start in verse 4, actually, of chapter 16. We're going to go through the, the full chapter from that point forward. So follow with me as I read John chapter 16, starting in verse 4. This is Jesus talking. He says, But I have said these things to you that when this hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does this mean? What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. 
And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the, the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you, This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There are three things I want you to see and, and make note of as we walk through this, this passage of Scripture. I want you to see the partner, which is the Holy Spirit, the plan that Jesus has, and then the promise. When I was in Bible college, uh, we used to joke about preaching and three-point alliteration and even the same word, and I would think, I would never do that. It just kind of happens now. So I never planned on doing that. But three Ps, partner, plan, and promise. First, the partner. When we come to John 13 that we did a number of months ago, we begin an intimate account of Jesus uh, leading his chosen disciples through a gauntlet. And I was again reading this section this week and, and can't get over the heaviness of what Jesus is informing these men. It's, it's big stuff here in these chapters. Jesus is truly leaving these men and he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, and he's going to be killed. And as you read the verses leading up to the end of John, you can sense the heaviness of it all. Our Lord is dealing with the the coming crucifixion and the burden of sin. And the disciples are in a state of shock. They're they're desperately trying to make sense of all of it. And they hear their future, but it doesn't doesn't, doesn't make sense to them. And here's some truth that might make you uncomfortable this morning. Jesus put these men in a difficult situation. He, he chose it for them. But we tend to think that because God loves us, he doesn't want us to be in those hard situations in life. I mean, it's, it's loving, right, to not do that to people that we care for. But if this is true for us as humans, do we really grow when there's no opposition, when there's no pain, there's no difficulty? 
You know, we, we learn this lesson over and over as parents. We allow our kids to go through difficult situations because we know that this is for their benefit. They need to go through it. In fact, this, this week as I was thinking through this, I was thinking through uh, when we landed in Sweden and we were preparing to, to start that life and Madeline's so excited about going to school and realizing it's all in Swedish and her, bless her heart, seven-year-old mind, thinking it's gonna be great. But I remember that day as clear, it's just vivid walking in there and starting class and Katie and I on their back, knowing what's gonna happen. The teacher's gonna get up and is gonna speak a language that she does not know. And all the excitement, the whole morning of the excitement, getting there, a little nervous and sitting in class and the teacher starts and she looks back and the fear, the dread. And his parents were like, oh, you know, you don't wanna, you wanna race in and you wanna rescue them from this. But we realize she has to do this. So we experience this, and this is what Jesus is experiencing. He sees the faces of these men and says, oh, this is heavy, this is huge. He says, you have to go through this sting. You know, as parents, you know, we, we need to remind ourselves, first, they belong to the Lord. They're only on loan to us, okay? They're only on loan to us. God owns them. But the same with Jesus' disciples. See, they're only alone in that period of time for him and that period where he's at on earth. They belong to the Father, and he's preparing them for it. And this story, I recognize, happened thousands of years ago, but it's still very relevant to us here this morning. Now, while our current situation is most likely not as intense as the moments leading up to the cross here, we've all dealt with heaviness in our life, Right? We've all faced situations that were beyond our control where, and we've had to contemplate what path should we take? How, how will we survive this? And we know, we, we, we read in the Bible that Jesus never promises that we'll avoid trouble in our lives. In fact, he talks about it here at the end of chapter 16. But he does promise that he will give someone to help in time of need. He offers himself. He offers God to live in us. And because we have God living in us, we can have confidence even in the midst of great uncertainty. So we come to chapter 16, verse 5, and Jesus has just finished his warning that we covered last week of what will come as we represent Jesus in the world. We'll start in verse 4 there. He says, but I've said these things to you that when this hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus always had the future on his mind. He was informing them of what would happen because they would need this information to continue on the mission of spreading this gospel throughout the world. And the phrase at the end of the verse, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus is saying, I didn't warn you of this at the beginning of the earlier persecution because the gun was pointed at me. Jesus took the brunt of all the hate, right? The Jewish leaders were focused on him. And now he's leaving. He's removing himself from the situation. He says, now both barrels are going to be pointed at you. I'm gone. But don't be surprised. You'll be hated. They will persecute you. They will kill you, as he said earlier. And they think they're doing a service to God when they take you out. In verse 5, he says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me where you're going. But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And these men are so 
so self-focused that they don't even ask where Jesus is going or, or why. And isn't this the truth for us when we're in the midst of a trial? We seem to, as humans, be so overcome with the grief of what is happening that we don't naturally begin to think, what is God up to? What is he doing? You know, what's the first thought usually that comes to our mind in the midst of a trial? God, get me out of this. End this now. And as humans, trials show us how selfish we really are, how, how self-preserving we really are. And when trials come into our lives, our true nature is revealed, our focus for what we really focus, live on and how we think is exposed. And Jesus says to the disciples, you men are not even concerned with, with what I'm doing and where I'm going. Instead, despondency has filled your hearts. But he continues, verse seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send them to you. And this is part of the gospel. It is, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus needs to go away. That's what he's saying here. They needed him to leave. And what a horrible thing for me to say, right? That Jesus needs to get out of the picture. Well, you need to understand that they're not just having God removed. Jesus is leaving to go be with the Father, but they still get God. I mean, to think about that on a human side, they had Jesus, humanly speaking, around them all the time. But there, I'm sure there were periods where they weren't with Jesus. They were into the city or they were this or that. And Jesus says, now I, I go, and we'll get to the why, but you still get God, and he indwells in you always. It is better for me to go so that the Spirit comes and lives inside of you. It is better for Jesus to leave. He had to die. He had to, to rise again from the dead. And, and where is Jesus now? In Romans 8, 31 through 34, it says, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who's, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand. And what is he doing? He's seated and he's interceding. His work is finished. And he didn't leave us all alone. No, he gave himself. He gave a helper. And he says it's better for this helper to come. It's, it's better for Jesus to leave. It's, it's better. And, and what are the Holy Spirit's responsibilities? Look at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in him. Concerning righteousness, because they go to the Father and he will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And you see those, those three areas of conviction of the Spirit. What he does in us, he convicts us. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Jesus then walks through here. Good three-point sermon. This is the pattern for, for every one of us that are saved in Jesus Christ. He convicts us of our sin, and he convicts us in, 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 of his righteousness and, and ours their lack of and, and the coming judgment. And then when we're saved, we're called to go out and share this message. Think back to these men, 
these disciples in this room. Jesus sends out a bunch of illiterate fishermen who have no rank in the country. And they're in a country that it, that it, that time in the world had virtually no political clout. And he says, go out there and turn this world upside down. And you have to realize what the message is. The Christian message is, is one of the most unpalatable messages possible. And these Jewish fishermen had to go out to their fellow citizens and say, hey, guess what? Yahweh, the, the uncreated creator, the transcendent king of the universe, the great God has become a penniless preacher who was crucified. Deliver the nation. And even the best of you are unclean unless you believe in him. How well is that going to go over? They need help. And God sent the help. He gave the Holy Spirit. And he uses a, a Greek word here to convict. I mean, uh, alecho. To convict somebody means to get them on the witness stand and cross-examine them. You know, asking them a lot of hard questions to show the holes in their story, to actually undo the fabric of a person's view of things. And it seems, in my first reading, odd. An odd statement to make about the Spirit. And in verse 7, Jesus uses again the word about the Spirit. He calls them the paraclete. And I said a month ago, the paraclete means to, to stand by somebody. Some people call the spirit the encourager, the counselor, the comforter. You can also, as I translate it, the advocate, the defense attorney. So why is, is Jesus using this statement again of the, of the advocate, the paraclete, to come and prosecute? In verse 7, he says, this is your advocate. He's your defense attorney. But in verse 6 and 8, he says, he has come to cross-examine you, to, to prosecute you, to, to show you your error, your error. And you say, how could that be? How can a defense attorney act as a prosecutor? And the answer isn't hard. You see it all the time. You see it in your own life. Those that you love, that you defend in different ways, when they err and they go astray, what do you do? You go after them. And you go after them hard. You know, they're, they're stuck in a, in a, engaged in a self destructive behavior, you go after them to convict them to get back in line. And that's what the Holy Spirit does with us. Brings conviction to our souls. He, he deals with us. And listen, friends, you cannot be a Christian unless the Spirit deals with you. And I want to say that again. You cannot be one of God's children unless the Spirit has come and made his case with you. He has convinced you of all three of these things. He says he will convict concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And this is the first part of the gospel. He convicts us of our sin, our wrongdoing. He is the one who does that. Not our mama, not our Sunday school teacher, not the preacher on the stage. No, it's the Holy Spirit that brings the conviction to our hearts. He can, he's, his job is to convict us of our lifestyle, our everything. That's the first step of becoming a Christian is knowing that you're a sinner, that you're guilty, and that you're insufficient in yourself. That God is holy, you're not. That's the first step. And then the second one, he says, concerning righteousness. He says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And the second brings hope to our despair. He convicts concerning righteousness. And you need to know that everyone in this world is, is trying 
desperately to make themselves presentable. We try to put our best foot forward, right? That's why when you know someone's coming to your house, you quickly clean up. When you leave the house, you look in the mirror. We, we try. And some, some spiritually say, I'm, I'm trying to do this by, through my children. Some try to make yourself presentable through your career. Some do it through their physique. Some do it through their ambition. Some do it through their money. Some do it through their education. Don't you know where I went to school? We try to make ourselves presentable, acceptable in the sight of others. And the Holy Spirit's job is to come in and show you everything you're doing in a way to try to make you presentable and says, it won't work. It won't work. Your, your ability to, to try to make yourself presentable before God won't work. God knows you. And you need Jesus. You need to be clean. And you need his righteousness. Because your righteousness won't work. And the third, when he's convicted, you have the first two, and he has to, is, is the last, is judgment. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Judgment for the prince of this world is cast out. That means the devil has been condemned. That means a Christian is somebody who, when they go through the first two steps here, they come to realize finally that they're safe. Your, your life is no longer just a random pattern of dilemmas and coincidences but rather there's a plan there's a map and this is that third one where we get hope and we need hope though we still presently live in this world with the hate and with the evil and with it looks like satan is winning that he might just conquer this world we need hope because jesus went to the cross friends the the bad guys lose the good guys win do you need that reminder this morning we need the hope. So Jesus ends this little section here, verses 12 through 15. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, all that the Father has his mind, therefore I said that he will take what is mine, declare it to you. There's still yet more that they don't understand. And Jesus is gracious, knowing that they can't handle it right now. The Spirit will continue to do the work in their lives that Jesus began. And the motive for all of it, he says, is to bring glory to God. So first we have the partner, next we have the plan. These next verses is where Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm about to leave you, I'm about to be crucified, I'm about to die, but I'll be back. And, and you'll be in grief, but when I come back and when you see me, you'll receive a joy that is very great. And, and they don't understand about his death. They don't understand about his crucifixion and so on. And they're asking him questions. And Jesus is talking about joy in these verses and how much do we need joy? Because in our lives we will suffer much. And there'll be sorrows and pain. And Jesus is teaching us in these next verses that you will have sorrow, you'll have despair and discouragements, but this will not define you. Jesus has more in store. He has his joy on, our, on his mind for us. He's, he's plotting for our joy. 
This is what you read, as you, you, what I read and what I understand as I come to this section. Jesus says in verse 16, a, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says? A little while and you will not see me. And, and again, a little while and you'll see me. And, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying to one another, what, what, is this, what does this mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus, who's God, knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And Jesus here is giving them details of the plan. In verse 16, that he's going to die. But he's, he's laying out for them, I'm going to die, but I will rise again and you will see me. And what's the response? They, they don't understand. Part of that maybe is their, their flesh. They, they don't want that. They don't want them to leave. The fact of the matter is it has to get worse before it gets better. And this is true for us in our lives as well. So much of our growth will happen out of the hard things that we experience in life. And if we're skippy to avoid all the troubles from, from life and the trials, we'll miss out on the growth that God will bring into our life, that he's planned for our lives. So the disciples respond to Jesus, which which. I don't know if you realize, this brings a close to the longest monologue in the Gospel of John. Since John 13, Jesus has been the only one talking. So they, they pipe in with a question, at least what John says here. And they can't quite grasp what Jesus is laying out. Sometimes it, it seems like when you're reading that Jesus is speaking to deaf men. But they're human. They're like us. They, they can't quite grasp all that he's saying in their feeble hearts. They, they can't understand. And Jesus takes time here to, to teach them again. So the same for us. We, we must endeavor not to, to let our slowness and understanding of what God is doing cause pride or laziness and, and obedience to him. Our, our job is to listen and to wait. Well, Jesus continues here in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is the, the crux of the passage this morning. This is the, the point is that you will only find joy in the gospel. You will only find joy in the gospel. You know, you know what gospel means, right? The words good news are another way of putting it. Joyful news, joy news. You know, when, the, when Jesus is born in Luke's gospel and the angels say, behold, I bring glad tidings. That's the news of great joy. The gospel means joy news. And let me talk about this for a moment in regards to the stories that we watch and read. Do any of you read books or watch TV or movies? Five of you. I know you're all lying. We, we, we do this, right? Maybe not as much as we like because we're busy, but we, we sit down to relax and read a book. Or So I'm going to talk about stories for a moment. J.R. Tolkien, you might know who he is, wrote an article a number of years ago. You can look this up. You can Google it. It's called On Fairy Stories. And it's about fiction and his theology and his theory of fiction. And in it, he says, I think, a tremendous thing. He says, basically, all good stories are based on the gospel story. He says the gospel story, the idea that, that here we are living in a world of darkness and sin. We're on our way to doom and a hero shows up. Somebody comes breaking into the world and takes on our doom. 
And it looks like at the very end, he's, he's most definitely lost. It looks like he's, he's been defeated. But lo and behold, he snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. And he exalts and he triumphs and he puts down all evil. And it turns out he's, he's not a wimp as we thought. But he's a great king and he's leading us to triumph. And he says in this article, he says that the essence of every story that we've loved is this. He says to look at every story people love and enjoy and, get, and they get joy from it. Every novel, every fairy tale, they're about those same kinds of situations. It looks like a dead end. It looks like it's all over for the hero, but oh, something happens. And Tolkien says in there that the essence of every single good story we've ever heard, if you look at it, they're just imitations. They're, they're reflections of the gospel. He says the only difference between the gospel and all these other stories is the gospel is a myth that became fact. All the myths we read and we love, all the poems, all the stories, all the novels, all the movies are modern myth. And Disney knows this. Disney has made billions over this idea, right? All of their movies has this plot. There's a villain and a hero. And the movies that everybody goes to see never get the critical acclaim because they're not serious enough. The serious ones, which are completely stripped of any kind of gospel plot where there's no heroism, there's, there's really no good or evil, there really isn't anybody snatching victory out of the jaws of defeat at the end, there isn't anybody dying for good, and they say, oh, we just want to make realistic movies. No one, no one cares about those movies as much. They're not the ones that stick in our mind, that we remember, that we can share again with people. People aren't running to see those as much. No, Tolkien says the essence of what gives people joy is the gospel. And the world is clamoring over this. And they don't even know it. He says in, the, in that article, if you don't believe the gospel in the end, you will go to despair because every human being needs to believe it's true. Let me pause right there. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every human being needs to believe the gospel is true? That wasn't very convincing. <laughs> Do you believe that? That they have to believe the gospel is true? Because this impacts us. Right? It should. If we've been impacted by the gospel, and we say this is joyous news. This is the only good news that you'll ever hear in your life. And it's impacted us. It's transformed us. And we believe in Jesus. We have to believe that everyone needs to believe this. Because if we don't, we just keep it to ourselves. This is the only news. And folks, this is the only story that can give you pure, everlasting joy. And, and, and the world is searching for this. And they pick up these books and, and they go to movies and watch TV shows for that pleasure of the joy at the end where things are resolved. And I believe Tolkien's right. This is all pointing back to the gospel. This is tying into what Jesus is saying to the men. Verse 20 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The story is going on here. And you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The darkness of the world will rejoice when Jesus is killed. They will see this as a victory. 
even though the disciples were experienced great sorrow as they see their friend, their king, hanging on a tree, they're, he says their sorrow will be turned to joy. And we see it later in John uh, chapter 20, verse 20, says when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and, and the disciples were glad, joyful, when they saw the Lord. Well, he's not done. He, Jesus gives a, a greater illustration to drive home the point, the point of joy. He says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now the opposite of joy is not sadness. And the reason why we know this is because the Bible constantly shows us your joy is so great that it can coexist with sadness. And if you don't believe me, read the book of Job. Because in the midst of all that Job experiences, what is he sitting there? He hasn't sinned, and he's in great anguish because his joy is, is deep. In our world, in our lives, joy can overlap the sorrow. That's what he's saying here in verse 21. And I, and I happen to know this secondhand. I've never birthed a child, just so you know. Thank you for that. Thank goodness. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born. Now, immediately, this experience is something I only know secondhand, but I, I love to remind myself, remember, because there are four great experiences that I've had in my life, watching four kids being born. One in Sweden. That's just fun right there. If you want to have fun, just go have a baby in another country. And I remember this, though, what he's saying is to be true. When the child is born, the woman forgets her anguish because of the joy that the child is born. However, the pain is not over, from what I hear. You know, just because the child is born, just because the child is out there, does, and just because the father's holding the child and beaming with, with just excitement and joy, finally meeting this, this one they've been praying for and waiting for, and, and the wife is just filled with joy over the child, it doesn't mean that the pain is automatically gone. It just means that it's not remembered as much as the joy. Right? They're overwhelmed with joy. The pain's still there. She, you know, Jesus is right. She forgets her pain. But it doesn't mean the pain is gone. No, joy overwhelms the pain. Now, the relief doesn't mean the whole body is not aching and throbbing like crazy, but there's joy, and the joy overwhelms it. What Jesus is saying is your pain and your sorrow in this world does not go away, but joy in him overwhelms it. And many Christians have made a tremendous mistake. In fact, there's people, actually, that are not Christians, and they come into the church and they begin to talk, and they begin to consider the gospel, are clearly doing it, not necessarily because they believe that they're sinners, not, not because they believe they need forgiveness. They don't see themselves as rebels against God who need to lay down their arms. No, they look at themselves as, as sufferers, and they have suffered much, and they come in because they want a balm, they need a medicine. 
And so there's a tendency often with those people to come and say, if I give myself to God, these pains and sorrows in my life will go away. And if that's you, I, I need to be honest with you. Jesus doesn't promise that. He promises something better. He says he'll give you joy that will overwhelm the sorrow that you have. So much so that you forget the pain because you're centered on the joy. He promises it. And Jesus says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Just like your salvation, no one will take your joy that God gives through the gospel. This is a mark that comes, this joy comes as a result of what he does and our circumstances of life can't, can't diminish it, can't take it away. Literally, it says no one can take your joy away. No one, nothing, no circumstance in this life will take your joy away. And you may sit there and think, wait a minute. I have been through some really tough things. And what he's saying here is if your joy is grounded in me, then circumstances are not the things which really give you your greatest security, your greatest identity, your greatest pleasure and greatest joy, right? It's him. Your, your joy is really found in me. And Jesus says, I don't change. I am Lord God. I change not. You change. They change. The stock market change. The kids change. The church changes. These things change. But I don't change, God says. And if you have everything resting, if your joy is resting in all those things, it will change. Your joy will flee. And people and circumstances will take away your joy all the time. But Jesus says, if your joy is in me, I don't change. It's not going anywhere. No one can take away your joy. It's, it's permanent. It's deep. Where do you get your joy? You need to ask yourself, where do I find my joy? Are you looking for joy only in your kids? Are you looking for joy only in your job? Are you looking for joy in your freedom and pursuit of a pain-free lifestyle? Where is your joy? Now, there's many things, don't get me wrong, that we can find uh, enjoyable in this world. Like God says, here, I gave this to you, enjoy. But only the all-satisfying joy can be found in Jesus, only him. And one of the reasons why Christians can be more joyful than anyone else in this world is because you know your sins are forgiven. If you've looked at yourself and you've seen yourself at your worst, and you know that you're completely forgiven, that you're accepted in him, you have a clear conscience. You're not afraid of anyone finding out the worst of you because you, you've confessed it to him. You believe in him, you trust in him, you're accepted in him, and your sins are forgiven. And because we're his, he says we can go to him. 
Our joy will always be there when we go to him and ask for anything. Verse 23, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. We can go to God and we, we can walk with him in obedience to his word and remain in him and he will give all that we need for this life. And so maybe you, you have been doing this, but yet you're lacking joy in your life. Read verse 24 again. Do you realize that prayerlessness leads to a lack of joy? What I mean there... If you don't talk to God, you're going to feel dry. You're going to feel disconnected. And so I ask, how is your prayer life? You spend time talking with God? He promises joy. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Have you been spending time with him? He says he'll give joy to us. Well, we've looked at the partner here, the Holy Spirit, and the plan. Last is the promise. I was rereading and reading again the last few verses in chapter 16. I kept asking myself, what is Jesus saying here? Why is this important? And, and what came to my mind was this really is a summation of everything that we've been covering for the last three months in John 13, 14, and 15, and 16. You know, this... John 13 started this whole upper room discourse where Jesus starts teaching the men, you know, the foot washing in John 13 and through here to, to John 16. And he says in verse 33 in our passage here, I've told you these things. What things? What things? Well, it's all of these chapters. It's all one discussion that happens in this. I tell you these things about me, all these truths, these absolute truths about God and Christ and heaven and hell. And listen, without these truths, you will never have peace. There is no peace without truth. And, and you're desperate for truth. And, and Jesus ends the, the upper room discourse by circling around and, and tying things up. You know, these are the last moments that Jesus has teaching his disciples before he will die. And he wants to make an impact. So he says in verse 25, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And Jesus says, and Christianity says, it's not truth in general that brings peace, it's not a set of theories that brings peace. No, it's the truth about a person. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus says your relationship with God is based on your attitude towards what I have taught you by myself. What do you say about me? And there's a lot of people in this world that love Christianity maybe, but they just want to get rid of Jesus. And you can't do it. It won't work. Christianity says the person of Christ and the truth about the person of Christ is the thing that brings peace. And everything else is secondary. And we have to, church, keep the focus on Jesus Christ in our own lives and in the discussions with those that we come in contact with. 
And here's some truth that should bring comfort to our souls. It, it hit me last night as I was finishing up. Verse 27, he says, for the Father himself loves you. But Jesus knows, even that moment, what I needed. But the Father himself loves you. So maybe you've come this morning, you had a bad morning, a rough morning. You lost it with your kids or your spouse, and you're sitting here this morning, and you're feeling bad now about yourself, and the rough week, or you're, you're in the midst of a trial. Go back to verse 27. You know, underline it your Bible, as long as it's yours, Bible. For the Father himself loves you. He loves you. The God of the universe loves you. And then he continues in verse 28. There's some incredible doctrine too that hit me this week. Everything he's taught about himself in the whole book. Look again with me in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world and I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. There's some important doctrine there. The first he says it came from the Father. That's the, the doctrine of his preexistence, his, his deity, his divinity. He existed before he was born. And second, he says, I've come into the world. That's the, the doctrine of incarnation. He became visible. He became touchable as a human, became a human being. And third, he says, now I'm leaving the world. That's the doctrine of his death. He's, he's going to voluntarily lay down his life. Next, he says, I'm, I'm going to the Father. That's the doctrine of his heavenly, heavenly intercession. He's going to sit at the right hand of the Father. We read earlier in Romans chapter 8. He's going to intercede for us and be a representative. It's there. It all fits together. In fact, the passage I read in Romans 8 have the same four doctrines as it does here in John 16, 28. It's, it's amazing. So spend time thinking through that. Compare the passages this week. I need to continue, though. Verse 29, the disciples said to him, Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his home and will leave me alone. And this is talking about when Jesus is arrested and the response in the midst of this, right? We already heard from Jesus what Peter's going to do, right? He's going to deny. And in the midst of all the next 20, 12 hours, actually, they're going to be scattered, he says. And you will leave him all alone. And yet, he says, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may, that in me you may have peace. And he says this, in the world you have tribulation. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And you may sit here this morning and Count up all the troubles in your life, all the wrongs you've suffered. And you begin to, to think, then, this is not fair. This is not right. This cannot be this way. And you're going to fight to make it right. And many of you have been hurt. Many of you have suffered. And you've been wronged. And this doesn't surprise God. What does a Christian do? How does a Christian respond? Look at the last verse. He takes heart. He endures. Not just grumbling and complaining. He endures. And he does it because he has joy. And where does his joy lie? How can he endure all this? Well, look at the last few words of that verse. 
Because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. This word here at the end, overcome, is, is that perfect tense of overcome. It shows an action that has happened in the past, but has implications to, to pointing to the present and future. He has overcome the world and is overcoming the world. His victory on the cross. And Jesus knew what would happen. You know, I think about this. It, it hit me too again last night. I love this, this ending here in John 16 of what he says. I, I love this. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. And then in John 17, he prays. And then in John 18, he's arrested. And then he dies. And the world thinks they have him. We've got him. We finally are going to take out Jesus. And Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I have complete control of this. No one takes my life, but I lay it down. No one steals anything from me. No, I give it away. Folks, this is confident hope. And in that, we can have peace. You know, we want joy in life, but we also want peace. And usually, peace, when we think about it, we want, usually revolves in this, there's horizontal peace. Right? We, we, we see a lack of it, so we see this here. You know, peace around with just us, human to human. But that's not what the peace that Jesus is talking about here. No, this peace peace with God. And we still may have conflict in this world. The greater issue is having this right relationship, having peace with God of the universe who we've offended with our sin. And what it means to be a Christian is that you have peace with God even though you will still have trouble with the world. And if you don't know this type of peace, friend, I, I want to show you what the Bible says. I want you to understand this, this vertical piece. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. That's why we have elders here. That's why as, as the service ends, we will be at the door greeting you. And if you have questions about this and you don't have this peace with God, you don't know this peace, we want to sit down and talk with you about this. We want to show you from God's word so that you can understand this and you can experience this. And then Jesus asked this question here. I passed over it when I'm coming back. Verse 31. Do you believe now? Right, isn't this the point of the whole gospel? John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe. Yeah, the whole point here, pointing to it is, do you believe now? And this is the most important question that you'll have to answer in your life. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, you trust in him and not yourself. You know, even coming back to the work of the Spirit who does in your life in verse 8, until all those three things have happened, the Spirit is not done with his mission. He's still working on you. And Christian friends that are here this morning, here's what I'd like you to do with, with John 16, verse 8. I want you to pray this way for those that you're reaching out to. That the Spirit would bring conviction over sin and righteousness and judgment to those that you desperately want to see and understand the gospel. 
And some of you maybe are very discouraged because you're working with people and they haven't understood this. It doesn't depend on your eloquence, folks. The power isn't in us. The power is in the gospel. And so we just need to unleash it and pray that the spirit does the work. The spirit will bring conviction concerning sin and concerning Christ's righteousness and theirs, the lack of, and judgment. They would turn. They would turn away from the world and trust in Christ. I pray that this, this passage, this chapter, will be an encouragement to you as we leave this, this morning. We thank you for your continued encouragement to come and to support and to learn, and I'm praying for you. On a weekly basis, walk through the, the church directory and pray for you in ways that God would make his, his word clear and understood to your heart and that you would go and take this with others and do the same. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity we've had to open your word. We thank you for the Spirit's work in our life. As he's come into my life, and he has convicted me, he has worked in me, and you have saved me. And God, I thank you for that. And I thank you for my friends here this morning that have also experienced this. And we thank you for the promises that we have through this new life you've given us, the promises of joy, of peace. And Father, I lift up to you, my friends, this morning that do not know you, that maybe have come many weeks to join us here on Sunday mornings, but have yet to turn and trust in you. And I pray, God, that you would bring understanding that Holy Spirit would bring conviction to their hearts. They would understand their sin. They would understand their, their trying and striving to be presentable to this world, and yet they need your righteousness, that theirs won't cut it. And through belief and through trust in you, they would have that peace and hope to know that you've conquered it all. You've overcome this world. Help us, God, as we leave this place to take your glorious gospel to the ends of the county as we live and work. May you be glorified in us and in our message. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.